Please be seated. In all the years that I've thought about the reading from St. Mark today, I've never really focused on the fact that Jesus' first response to the rich man who is anxious about his status, about his eternal life, Jesus' first response does not immediately appear to be an answer to the question. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? I mean, it's, it's a bit like saying, how do I get to Birmingham? And saying, why do you say get instead of travel or journey? You know, it's, it's like, it seems like a non-answer. And yet, the more I've thought about it, it seems that Jesus is actually going to the heart of the matter. Because this rich man like Job long before him, wants someone to say, you're good, you're okay, good to go. Job, crying out for a judge whose attention he can't get, says, I'd rather be covered in darkness than, than, than go on with this uh, injustice. I want someone to, to recognize me and say that I'm justified or assured you're good. And that's the same thing the rich man wants finding that assurance elusive and its absence deeply troubling, Jesus is actually going to the heart of the matter. No one can be called good except God alone. The first parish I served, I remember a parishioner saying in all seriousness and, and, and depth that he didn't like saying a general confession every time he came to church because too often he, wasn't, he frequently couldn't think of anything to confess and he really wasn't that bad. He was a man of genuine moral rectitude. But you don't have to be actually quite good to have that feeling. My grandmother, who I loved and learned a lot about after she died, uh, was divorced twice in, a, in an age and from a class in which once was unthinkable. She was her own person. And she said she didn't really like going to communion. And you'll remember, those of you who grew up in the church, that the older prayer books often seemed to be all about writing of wrongdoing, sin. You had to fast and pray before coming to communion, confess your sins. Services frequently began with the confession. You remember the prayer of humble access, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And my grandmother said she didn't like going too often to what she called the holy cue because she didn't feel that bad. This, this woman I loved, uh, this woman I loved, got it in a sense, understood, confession understood only as enumerating our wrongdoings, remembering how worthless we really are is not helpful. And it leads all manner of people to remonstrate correctly, I'm just not that bad. But no one is good but God alone. The truth is that we live in a deeply compromised world and that we can never justify ourselves. We can never receive ultimate assurance in this compromised reality that we're really okay, you're okay, you're good, save by the grace of God. I've been thinking about this really a lot over the last couple of weeks when uh, two weeks ago uh, I and the clergy from All Saints, I was proud we were all there, and our bishop and many of the clergy of the diocese stood vigil outside the Jackson State Prison officially the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Prison. And you probably know that the largest prison in the state officially houses the state execution chamber. 
and it was used most recently to execute Kelly Gissender, and it was for her that we were keeping vigil. And while it seemed to me there was a compelling case for clemency in this case, I also know that we cannot argue against the killing of prisoners by the state on the grounds that those convicted of dreadful crimes are really very nice people. They've done terrible things, and the law and the process of the law has been carried out. My thoughts that night, I didn't really want to be in conversation with anyone, my thoughts that night were all over the map, and I was thinking about, as we stood, we, we couldn't see the prison, we were segregated from people who were supporting the execution, probably in a very different spirit than our group, and I started thinking about power and privilege and coercion and what we do to each other, and I remembered the woman who I've banned from coming even to church here, who is mentally ill, perfectly nice, but we've said we'll help you get treatment, but until you get treatment, you can't keep coming here. And I watched our security guy lead her away, and I started thinking about what's, what's going on here? We live compromised. I thought about the allegedly treatment-resistant people who inhabit the prison-like shelter at Peachtree Pine, what happens to them in the event the shelter is closed down. I thought about how it's all right for communities to have norms and what happens to those who cannot regulate their own behavior, even to the point where prison is an appropriate response and consequence for some people, probably not nearly as many as are currently incarcerated. I thought about all these things, and they were swirling around in me and have kind of cast a pall over the last couple of weeks. And I was left with two powerful thoughts that have stayed with me. And one is a continuing and deep revulsion against the killing of prisoners by the state. And I know we're probably not all on the same page on this, and I know that we're not, certainly not on the same page as all our brothers and sisters across the state, but it's where, it's where I am. When ancient law declares in Exodus, but if there is any further injury, then she'll, she'll appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It was actually a liberal law. It said you may, it was, it was on the trajectory of, of grace. It said from now on you may only extract punishment in relation to the crime instead of the current practice of wiping out an entire family for some perceived offense. It was a move toward compassion, toward fairness, one that Jesus I believe, picked up when he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The woman killed in our name clinically, strapped to a gurney, a needle inserted in her vein by a chap with rubber gloves on, witnesses behind a two-way mirror, paperwork all in place. Remember, the Nazis had really good paperwork. Until a doctor, Hippocratic Oath notwithstanding, presses a plunger, and a controversial cocktail enters her body and shuts down her organs, and she's declared dead, and justice is declared to have been done. And the difference between all the situations, all the people, all the coercive moves, all of the power and privilege I enjoy, all the things I talked about, thought about that Tuesday night, was that in every other situation there was some possibility of a different outcome of redemption, of change, of healing, of choice. In that purpose-built execution chamber, there was none of that. None of that. It was like Calvary, except she wasn't innocent. And 
God have mercy on our souls, and in, though, in whose name this gross and uncivilized deed was done. But that was just one thought that has stayed with me, because alongside it has come the thought there is no such thing as moral purity in a compromised world. I know that what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. I can act with all the moral rectitude I can muster. I can keep trying to do the next right thing. But in the end, I stand on the shoulders of all those who have shed blood to maintain the privilege that I enjoy, the freedoms that we enjoy in a rich Western country. I, like you, benefit from all kinds of injustices. Think about the diamond ring that expresses undying love and how that diamond ring may well have cost countless lives on its journey from the ground to your beloved's finger. Even great beauty casts a shadow if we allow ourselves to see it. Jesus told the rich man there was no way he could justify himself. And Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him even as he delivered this unhappy message. The only hope is to strive for right relationship with God and with each other, always appreciating that we are not God and we are dependent on grace for life, the kind of grace that we would actually experience if we gave away all our possessions and followed Jesus fully. It's about grace. It's about our need of God's grace, and it's about how God's grace actually does free us for life. Our confession is not about wrongdoing. It's why we don't leave a long silence here when we call ourselves to confession, because what we're really confessing is that we know, again, that we are not God, and that we are people who live by grace. Grace in our lives that prepares us for new and renewed humanity, raised for a moment of peace, gathered around the table of the Lord, hearts opening even in the midst of a deeply compromised, deeply flawed world, hearts opening to the possibility of gratitude and joy and abundant life by the grace of God. In our time of prayer, try imagining Jesus looking at you with all your anxieties, whether it's about eternal life or money or something else, looking at you loving you and saying in response to all your anxieties, for mortals, for you, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. In silence and in response to the gospel, let us pray.